listening to BachCast, episode number 29. So in this episode, we return to Bach's um, sonatas for violin and harpsichord, or if you want, we can call them violin and keyboard if you prefer uh, your keyboard to change away from the harpsichord. The opening uh, little morsel that you heard was actually of course, not violin or harpsichord. It was. Uh, it came from the album of Bach's French and English Suites um, by Stefan Teminga, uh, and he is accompanied by Axel Wolf and Domin Marensik. This is an album that came out in 2011 of uh, arrangements of some of Bach's works, and they included the opening movement of BWV 1017, uh, which I thought was a nicely done arrangement. It has a different bit of color, and it really uh, gave uh, some prominence to the melody or the melodic component to uh, this opening. So this, uh, like our other violin and keyboard sonatas that we've been looking at, uh, has a four-movement structure. It's only the last one we'll encounter that, that doesn't use that structure. So we've got slow, fast, slow, fast. And this happens to actually be my favorite of all of the uh, violin and keyboard sonatas, the, um, the one, 1017 in C minor. Um, and one of the issues that I think that you need to always consider uh, with this group, because likely uh, when you go to make a purchase, you're going to be purchasing probably the set, right? There's a lot of um, folks out there that have purchased um, box works in in set configurations and why would you if they're all very high quality works why would you just record one uh, it's more likely that you're going to find recordings that have the the set of six um, and so with so many of those that that I happen to own I'm always looking at how balance is achieved and that's something I think really needs to be examined when we evaluate these different performances that um, we take a look at it is how that balance is achieved. I think for, in my mind, when we think of a solo sonata of some sort that has an accompaniment, um, we would tend to favor the first instrument that's named. And so there, I think there is an assumption or a feeling that these are violin sonatas and they happen to have a keyboard accompaniment. Um, and there are many examples of something like that in the Baroque, right? For we will see something for violin and basso continuo, or we will see something for uh, oboe and basso continuo. And we would call that an oboe sonata, even though that there's a, another part, a bass part, well, Bach's, Bach's arrangement here is different because what he does is he writes for two hands and he really writes it for the keyboard. And so that begs the question of how important is the keyboard? Is it just an accompanist or is it an equal partner? And I think if you look at the score and you kind of listen for the interplay between the violin line and the right hand of the harpsichord, they, they share back melody back and forth. And this has been pretty consistent through the sonatas, and this one is no different. And for me, the, the real joy in this sonata is the second and the fourth movements. The slow movements for me are probably always 
uh, going to take second fiddle just because I liked I like the style of something that's a little faster and Bach really bounces in these. He really uh, writes in such a way that you're probably going to want to bounce your foot up and down a little bit or you're going to want to move your body actually. There, it's, it's kind of palpable music in that way. And so that's what I look for. And most all the performances do a pretty good job with the second and fourth movements. So then I say, well, what really differentiates a really average one to a really good one? And for me, again, it's that balance. But it's also how, how do they make something interesting out of the slow movements? And let's take a look at some examples. Um, I'm going to start with one that I really kind of like. And unfortunately, this one is, I don't know if you can even buy this one anymore. Uh, this is Tan Koopman, who is a well-known harpsichordist and organist and leader of the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra. He happens to be paired here with Monica Huggett. And this recording uh, came out on Philips. And um, so I don't know if you'll be able to find it in reissue or not. But uh, Koopman is sometimes criticized for kind of over-embellishing uh, in, in the keyboard parts. And frankly, I like it. And... In this one, I think it really brings some prominence and helps balance out that, um, balance the harpsichord and violin parts uh, because it brings some prominence to it. Uh, I'll see what you think. So here's the first movement of 1017. Uh, this is the fourth sonata for violin and keyboard by Johann Sebastian Bach. I, I kind of like that and it uh, they continue to have that same sort of uh, balance that I think is so well done uh, Koopman of course is, is adding a few little um, ornaments here and there it's not overly done but it if you have listened to multiple recordings of this it may stand out just a little bit and then Huggett is trying in her way to do that as well um, I think there are likely other examples of other violinists being expressive but again i think this one deserves mention because the balance thing is done so well uh, the harpsichord and the violinist uh, at least in what we get on the recording that mix that happens when you record with different microphones and the engineer has to make decisions 
has really tried to keep them on equal footing and um, beyond what they are doing to differentiate themselves with expressive means, uh, I, I just think that both the harpsichord and the violin come across to us as kind of equal partners there in terms of the volume level and the, the balance between those two instruments. As we listen to some others, I think you'll notice that that balance is a little off. And typically what we see is that it's favored more towards the violin. And one of the things I'm putting in the show notes is just that that careful balance is whose responsibility is it? Um, if you hear these pieces in a concert, uh, if you go to a live performance, and of course a live performance today in a large concert hall uh, distorts the original balance that we might have been able to experience uh, in the, the world that Bach likely thought about these pieces, right? Because this was not intended as music for a large space. It's it's chamber music. You would likely have uh, been performing it in a, in a small room. There may be an audience, but it likely wasn't, uh, you know, several hundred people that were going to be listening to this. And so there is a responsibility, I think, on the players to find that balance. And some of it is a choice of an instrument. Uh, there are harpsichords that are louder than others. And then there's the violins themselves, which can be louder or softer, depending upon some choices made. Uh, the design of the violin, the strings used, the bow used. And then beyond that, it's it's this balance of how do I come out of the texture and how do I go behind? And likely, uh, that responsibility is going to lie with the violinist. And so what we don't know when we hear recording is who is ultimately responsible for the result we get. Um, I think most of the responsibility should go with the performers and wherein there are weaknesses in a performance or because of the space in which it's recorded, then yes, a recording engineer can interfere a little bit and help with that. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not going to know, right? Because uh, there's there's a lot more people than the two two individuals here involved in making a recording. Um, and I would just keep that in mind when you hear these pieces performed live, if you have that opportunity, uh, and more than likely it wouldn't be the complete set, but hey, maybe you go to a concert program and B2V 1017 is on the list. Um, it really could be any of these. Listen for the balance and, that, and how well it's done, because I think uh, of all the recordings that I have access to here uh, that I own, uh, this one does the balancing the best. Um, and so we're going to move now to the second movement. Now this is an allegro, um, which means, of course, it's it's on the faster side. And I only bring that to your attention because the last movement uh, has been written by Bach as allegro assai, uh, a faster allegro, uh, pushing things a little bit. So the second movement likely should should have a slightly slower pulse than the fourth.
the first uh, sample there was, again, Monica Huggett, Tan Kupan. I want to continue uh, the good work that they did, and I think it was um, the trilling and the ornaments that uh, Mr. Koopman puts into to the right hand there were uh, really stand out. It, it, um, I just really like his, his playing, what he contributed there. So uh, that's something I love about that performance. Uh, I think you noted that when I changed uh, samples or changed uh, examples, the second one had this, um, number one had almost the same tempo, uh, but number two, it had this very uh, different sound quality to it. It was a very live type sound uh, with a lot more of a acoustic uh, smearing and space, um, which I have to say as a performer, when you go to a, a hall or a place where you get reverberation, it's, it's kind of cool. It's this kind of sonic effect that sounds interesting. And likely it's different from where you practice, right? You practice in a, in a home or you practice in a practice room. Uh, usually it is a very dead uh, acoustic space and you're just hearing the instrument. You're hearing a, a lot of it's bouncing off, off walls. So on the cover of the recording by um, Giuliano Carmignola, which he recorded this in 2002 with uh, Andrea Marcon, um, they have done a lot for Sony Sony Classical, and this uh, actually came out in Sony as well. Uh, they recorded these two, and they're, they're standing in what appears to be like a, I would call like a, a art gallery or something with a marble, hard marble floor and white walls. And um, I just can't help but think uh, it almost sounds like they're playing in that space. I don't know if that was actually this, this, the location where they recorded, but it has sort of that white wall, echoey, bouncy, marble floor type effect to it, which in some cases can can add to a recording or sometimes it could take away. And for me, I, I prefer a little bit the drier sound that we got in the first example. And it, it made the balance issue for me a little harder to, um, to really compare because uh, the violin does have a prominence it was sometimes easier to lend my ear to the violin part, but harpsichord would come out of the texture too. And that's where I think you have the expertise of a, of a performer to come in and out. But again, I, it, it's difficult for me to say how much of that was uh, my difficulty in hearing has led to the acoustical space in which that was uh, recorded. Uh, or as I hope they weren't doing this, but there are recordings where people add acoustical space after the fact using digital effects. But um, when you have just two performers, that much uh, reverberation to me doesn't sound natural as, as maybe we heard in the first recording. So I just brought that. They have a, a pretty solid uh, recording um, of, of the six sonatas. It came out on, on two discs and it's a nice comparison. The one thing as you're shopping for these sonatas, and I'm, I'm stepping now out of number four and getting to the sixth one, which is the one that's uh, has more movements to it. There are actually a couple different versions, I believe three different versions of the last one, um, BB 1019. And that's because um, Bach changed the design of things. He has um, an alternate movement. Well, we'll get there eventually, but um, 
if you're shopping and saying, you know what, I, I, there's no clear like winner or clear gotta have it, and I will tell you that right now, that's the conclusion I come at. There is no clear uh, the one single copy of this these works that you should go out and get. Uh, the reason I keep buying them and keep exploring new ones is because I'm I'm not I haven't found it yet, right? And what you end up with now is this collection that you can bounce back and forth, which is really cool. Um, and for me, comparing this to Monica Huggett's was, gosh, they 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 basically chose the same tempo, but you get a little different result. And I hope the other thing you picked up on was the, uh, the harpsichord playing, uh, a little less flamboyant, a little less um, fussy, if, if that's the word. I don't fussy sounds like a negative term for me. It's not, but uh, Mr. Koopman is is adding some ornaments in there, which I like, but Mr. Uh, Marcon has not. And hopefully you got to hear that uh, comparison. <laughs> So it's in this version that's new to us. This is uh, Stefano Montanari and Christophe Rousset. They recorded this in 2006. Uh, again, full collection. And I really like their approach here. As you likely heard, the violin really does get the show here, at least the beginning. Uh, has these kind of A, 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 B type phrases where one is an introduction, the second is a repeat, in theory, it, it doesn't always hold true. Uh, one answers the other, but it's kind of this back and forth. And their approach was to take uh, what's likely is one of the faster tempi. They record this movement in three minutes, which I think is spot on. It's perfect. Uh, I was comparing it to another recording, which they basically added a whole minute to this. Uh, to me, it was just way too slow. Uh, the phrasing is a little different, but I do like... Um, how the violin kind of takes over as center stage and then kind of steps back, which is what I've been talking about in terms of balance, uh, that sometimes it's okay to be on the top or um, in the front, and sometimes it's okay to step back and, and be in the background. Uh, and I really felt that um, these two performers decided to use that effect to their advantage and to the music's advantage.
So as a comparison, uh, three minutes is, this, is the timing on this uh, movement as well. This is Reinhard Goebel uh, from his recording. Um, checking the date on this one, and I don't have it. I believe this was like uh, 1979, 80, 81, so it's very early 80s. Um, this was included in two releases. I actually own them both. The first was uh, an archive Galleria offering of the the collection, along with a few of the other violin works with Basso Continuo, some of which are questionable whether they're boxed or not. And then the second release was the uh, Kammermusik uh, collection by Musica Antiqua Köln that included uh, some of the other works like the, the flute sonatas um, and the gamba sonatas. And that was then re-released uh, along with the Brandenburg Concertos and Orchestral Suites which is the orientation which I purchased it, uh, which was, I thought, a pretty good deal at the time to get everything collected together. Um, so that was Musica Antiqua Cone, Reinhard Goebel, and the phrasing's a little different um, than what we just heard previous. To me, it's a little more traditional. I really, I thought the balance was fine. I thought the echo effect of the phrases was, was um, being exploited as well, but not to the level that it was with um, Mr. Montanari, uh, his version. Um, and what I really appreciated this one was the sound of, of, of Mr. Goebbels' violin, especially the lower register. It just really sounded nice. Um, but I, the one criticism I have of this collection um, beyond the recorded sound quality, which to me it sometimes, at times sounds Thin. And I don't think it's the violin, I, because the thinness comes across in the harpsichord as well. I think it's something to do with the, uh, the, the microphones that were used. But he's using a, a vibrato uh, throughout, which um, is, I guess, is a questionable practice. It's not a heavy vibrato, but it's there enough that I don't, I just don't like it. And in fact, uh, I don't like their first movement of this at all more of that kind of the sound quality of the violin uh, and I don't know who to blame for it but that's why I didn't want to feature it but this one seems to work pretty well uh, except for that note that I made of I'm not so such a big fan because there are enough long notes where vibrato could be used as an ornament and not as this kind of just constant um, effect that we use in the background but that, that said, we're going to experience the, the fourth movement by the same um, ensemble. And I believe this was Hank Bowman is the harpsichordist here um, with Reinhard Goebel, the Allegro Asai. And just for comparison, because it is a faster movement, they take four and a half minutes to complete. The last and to me the bestest uh, of these uh, four tracks from BDV 1017, the Allegro Asai.
So that was Richard Agar on harpsichord and Andrew Manzi on the violin. And uh, I think it was a nice comparison to the Gerbil because they've adopted basically very similar tempos. Uh, and I think that the balance issue is, is still apt to compare. A Gerbil probably has a pretty good balanced sound, except the violin probably is... If anybody's going to be unbalanced, it would, it would gear towards the violin. And again, with uh, the one we just heard with Andrew Manzi, um, the balance issues there again, but if it were to topple one performer's favorite, it would tend to go to the harpsichord. Uh, just little nuances to kind of take note of as you listen. Um, but none of the recordings we've I've really shown you in this one do it horribly. And there are some that are out there that are just so focused on one instrument. Um, I want to give you a, a final take because um, I've been kind of do two, 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 right? But on this one, I'm going to give you a last one. Um, if you're interested in the speed there, I think that speed is, that tempo for that last one is, is pretty good. I like it. It fits for me. If you want it even in faster, the recording I shared earlier of Stefano Montanari and Christophe Rousset, they actually shave about... 15 more seconds uh, off the piece, and uh, you definitely feel it push. Uh, it's still successful, although I think this the tempos that we just heard were good too. Uh, the tempo you're gonna hear uh, next, uh, the movement, if you're looking at the, the playback speeds, says three minutes, nine seconds, which, which sounds like, whoa, they've taken it hyperspeed. They've shaved a minute and a half off of it. Uh, and what they did to get that speed is basically, um, cut out a repeat, and so that's why it's that way. This tempo is actually pretty in line, I think, with uh, what we heard uh, from our previous two examples, but this is a recording made in 1980. Uh, it, um, it features not a harpsichord, but a piano. This is Glenn Gould performing with um, Yendi Mehewin. And I probably butchered the pronunciation of his name. I apologize. Um, I've actually never heard it said, and I've always been confused about how to say it. But um, I wanted you to hear the difference in the violins um, as, as the last point of comparison. As you know, if you're a reader of my site, I, I love Reinhard Goebbels playing. I think he's, you know, uh, even though he's no longer performing, uh, he has one of the most delicious violin sounds, his interpretation, the way he adds uh, emotion to, to the sound in a Baroque way is, is outstanding. And so I, you know, I'm a big fan of his playing, um, but that's not mean he's the only one in town, right? So uh, Andrew Manzi, for me, you really got to hear the difference in the, in the, the instrument and the capabilities of the instrument. Uh, when Manzi goes to the lower register, it just kind of falls behind. It, it doesn't have the speaking quality that um, Goebbels' violin had. Um, in this case, I think you're going to really tell the difference. The, the playing by Glenn Gould, he was, uh, of course, a pianist, but he was known to be imitating the sound of the harpsichord, so he has a very light, uh, short touch on the piano, so you're going to hear almost the same type of texture in terms of the sound of the piano as the harpsichord, he plays short, but the violinist is, a, of course, a, a modern violinist. Um, Menuhin is known as a 
uh, you know, one of the great violins of the world. There's a school named after him, and he was a very famous British uh, violinist uh, of the of a real classical tradition um, that probably never really thought about the Baroque tradition that we now have kind of front and center when we think about this music. And so I always think it's interesting to hear that perspective of what does Bach sound like maybe for more of a romantic sound world than, than the Baroque one. Uh, and so we'll close with this recording. Uh, this was uh, comes from the 34th CD. If you were to happen to purchase the Glenn Gould Bach edition, it's a big set uh, from Sony in a blue box. And this was one of the features, uh, his collaboration with some other artists on the work of Bach. So I want to go back to my original thought on balance because in that rendition, the violin definitely has a very um, prominent place in terms of the texture. But there is this one thing that Gould has in his back pocket that a harpsichordist does not, and that's the dynamics of a piano and the ability to emphasize a particular line. And in that, in that short clip that you heard, there was a few of those bass notes that he goes after, which really I thought was kind of cool. He was able to emphasize those and kind of kick back back to the violin part. Um, to me, that constant vibrato that uh, performers of that era really played with gets in the way of box music. There's so many fast notes. There's not a whole, there's not a lot of time for it. When it comes in, it's, it sounds a little strange. So it's not my favorite performance, but I think it's a lovely thing to listen to and to, uh, to include when you're trying to appreciate these works because I think there is no one way to perform any of these things. I've already mentioned that, and I don't think there's one superlative, you gotta have it recording of these works. And so I really look for the contrast between them, which for me reveals some of the rich, richness there because every performer is gonna have certain little bits and parts that they wanna emphasize. And especially in those fast movements, which I love in particular, number four is my favorite. Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, dun, boom, boom. Just really, really cool uh, music. And of course, the more versions you can uh, pull up and listen to, you'll see how people interpret those. So to kind of recap, um, I'm always uh, enjoying the, the version that was made um, in the, around 1980-81 by Musica Antiqua Cone. I think that's a, uh, a reference for me, although I think uh, because of maybe the time it was, in which it was recorded, that uh, sound quality is sometimes not, it's, there's a thinness to that, that recording that I don't like. And so some of the others that I've been able to play for you today, uh, most notably one of the strong ones for me is Stefano Montanari along with Christophe Rousset. Uh, their uh, version 
competes, if you will, with Musica Antiqua Colnes in the terms of the speed departments. Um, but I also think it has a little bit of a better balanced sound. I would also say that uh, Richard Egar's harpsichord uh, in the version with Andrew Manzi comes across very nicely. And if you remember, we started with a version uh, with Monica Huggett and Ton Koopman. And for that version, to me, the harpsichordist really kind of emerged as uh, one of the stars because of Koopman's sort of musical personality and the way he plays. So I hope this revealed to you some different takes on Bach's fourth uh, sonata for violin and keyboard. And I'm probably of the camp preferring the versions that include the harpsichord as that keyboard. And if you find versions that use a basso continuo that has an added cello, because I know they exist out there, I'm not a fan of those either because I really think it is a keyboard. Um, but then we also saw, hey, if you choose to go with the piano, what, what, are, what are the value adds? And there's a little bit of that uh, ability to do what the violinist can do, which is duck in and out of the limelight uh, by the ability of a piano to have uh, a little more dynamic shading. And so I don't particularly own one now, uh, but I'm looking forward to a, maybe a version in the future that features the forte piano, a period piano of the time, and to compare and see how that works. So with that, I want to thank you listeners for listening to BachCast. I know this episode has been a long time coming. I took a hiatus, if you will, and being having, having the time to uh, create some. But as it is the holidays here and I'm off from work, uh, hopefully I will get caught up with a few more episodes uh, exploring the works of Bach, uh, one for each episode. Thanks for listening.